Well, hello again and welcome. Uh, it's hard to believe it's been two weeks already, but we are marching on with uh, lots of great interviews and uh, presentations. So I want to welcome you back to the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint live series. Uh, my name, of course, is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director. Uh, and I started the Alliance uh, really about two and a half years ago to raise awareness about the issue of restraint and seclusion in schools across the country and beyond. We have an international audience and even an international team that, that's helping us out. Um, but of course, we're concerned with more than just restraint and seclusion. It's restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, all the things that we're doing to kids in the name of behavior uh, rather than helping and supporting children. So our mission is really to educate the public and bring people together that are interested in changing minds, hearts, policies, and practices so that we can reduce things like restraint seclusion in schools across the country and beyond. Really, really excited today. Uh, and I feel like I say that every time, but I'll be honest with you, every time I am excited because we have a lot of fantastic uh, guests that have been joining us for these presentations. Uh, today, our guest is probably not a stranger to many of you. Uh, we are really thrilled to have Dr. Mona Della Hook joining us today for a special interview. And I do wanna let you know that we actually took some questions ahead of today's interview. I posted something on social media asking people if they might have questions. And several people did uh, send some questions to us on social media. So we'll be trying to ask some of those questions. Of course, I always have a long list of questions myself, and we're gonna be asking you if you have questions during the interview, you're welcome to put those up as well. Uh, so let me go ahead and introduce you to our guest today. Uh, Mona, hey, how are you? Hey, hi, hi everyone, hi Guy. It, it's great to see you. So it's I'm gonna, so I'm gonna great give to your you. formal introduction here for, for people oh. that may not be familiar with your work. Uh, and then, then I have more introduction to do after that. But uh, of course, you know, Mona, you're, you're a, uh, Dr. Mona Delahook is a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 30 years of experience. So you began doing this when you were two, is that right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was a child prodigy. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. Caring, you know, caring for children and their families. Uh, you're a senior faculty member uh, for the Perfectum Foundation, an organization dedicated to supporting families of neurodiverse children, adolescents, and adults. Uh, you hold the highest level of endorsement in the field of infant and toddler mental health in California uh, as a reflective uh, practice mentor. Uh, you are, of course, a frequent speaker, trainer, consultant to parents, organizations, schools, and public agencies. Uh, of course, you, you have a lot of amazing uh, podcasts that I've seen and, and interviews and, of course, teaching. Uh, and, of course, you're really dedicated your career to promoting compassion, relationship-based uh, neurodevelop neurodevelopmental interventions for children with developmental, behavioral, emotional, and learning differences. And, of course, you're, you're the author of one of my favorite books, uh, which I, of course, have to hold up here. Uh, I now have two copies, one, one that has your, your amazing uh, signature in it uh, after getting to meet you recently. Uh, and uh, amazing book. And, you know, if, if the title alone is not enough, you know, kind of beyond behaviors, using brain science and compassion to understand and solve children's behavioral challenges uh, and social and emotional development and early intervention. You know, you've done a lot of amazing things uh, in your your writing and your book and your work in the field. And of course, we recommend to people not only to read the book, but to check out your blog at monadelahook.com for a lot of interesting uh, and really useful information. So I've been a big fan of yours for quite some time now. Uh, had the pleasure of being introduced to you at some point, and you've been an amazing um you know, person to to be able to work with and uh, to be inspired by. Uh, and I know that many, many people 
really have a tremendous amount of, of respect yeah. for the work that you're doing. So we're really excited to have you here today and it's great to see you. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's mutual and the synergy of what I do and what you've, what, what you talk about guy and, and everybody, the parents, the teachers, the professionals from around the world who I communicate with and, and who resonate with uh, my work. It's, it's a very exciting time. It's an honor. It's an honor to be uh, kind of putting the, putting a kind of frame around my entire career by writing about and talking about those things that I feel need to move forward. And those, those things, especially related to our vulnerable children who depend on us for their physical health, their mental health. So I am so excited. I'm so excited. There's nothing I, I like to do more than to do things like this, where we're talking together, putting our minds together and learning from each other. So thank you. Absolutely. And, and you know, um, in, in the time that, that I've had an opportunity to to chat with you and to, mm-hmm. um, you know, to interview you here for, for the uh, the show and, and have other discussions um, over the last couple of years, there's some positive progress. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's great to see the work that you're doing and so many others are doing. And, and it feels like we're at a point, uh, you know, maybe we're not yet to the tipping point, but we're getting close. There's a lot of great things happening. And, and again, uh, I think your work is is really amazing. I do want to mention to people, I, I had the um, really um, great privilege to attend one of your classes recently. Uh, you were here in the, the DC metro area and I attended your Beyond Behaviors Masterclass. Uh, and I know that was being filmed. And I know you also do other yeah. training uh, and I'll just kind of hold this up here for, for people to see. But this is from a, a class that uh, I participated in recently with you. And I know you do other training like that as well. Where is that kind of training available for people that might want to uh, really dive in a little deeper? Oh, yeah. And it was so wonderful to ha- to meet you in person and to do my first live workshop, you know, training in uh a year and a half. It was just so great to be in a room together. So the trainings, um, that training is will be, I think, released in October, maybe. Um, and that one, and then the other class, the other course that I did for uh, an introductory course for parents, teachers, uh, team members. If you're intro- if you want to introduce someone to the ideas uh, in the in the book, but it goes kind of beyond that. Are all through um, the publisher of the book, which is. PESI, P-E-S-I Publishing, and Psychotherapy Networker. Psychotherapy Networker and PESI uh, joined forces. And so they are an incredible organization that is dedicated to continuing education. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you can find all that information on my website, the links to it and all. But that's they are great. available on my, you know, links on my website. That's great. And I'll try, I'll try to make those available uh, in the chat here as well yeah, as, as we get talking. Um, but I just want to mention that to people because it, it really is a great opportunity to, you know, move, move kind of beyond what's in the book and, and really, mm. you know, get to uh, appreciate, uh, you know, your experience and, and uh, your approach in, in teaching this is so uh, helpful, I think, to, to so many. Mm. So before we Thank get you. into it, I have a lot of questions for you. And as I mentioned, uh, we had a number of questions that people had sent us uh, from social media, but I want to start from a point, and, and I will say real quickly before I, I do that, 
we have hellos from all over the world. So I'm looking at I'm that. Looking at we have uh, oh on, on, Ontario. We have the Netherlands. We have the uh, Netherlands. England, uh, we have people in Seattle, New Jersey, oh. Arkansas, Virginia, uh, North Dakota. And, and that's the, the wonderful thing about, uh, you know, the Internet and the work that we're doing here is, you know, this is that tipping point where we can, you know, rather than just one one person out there learning about something mm -hmm. in their area to yeah. be able to share this throughout the the, the world is, is just fantastic. So it's amazing. Uh, Thank you all for joining from every point of your of the earth of where you are. It's so wonderful. Absolutely. So let me let me start out with a, a question uh, getting a little bit at the background here for you know, I'm sure that we have a lot of dedicated fans of your work uh, joining us today. But for somebody that might not be familiar with kind of the beyond behaviors approach, um, can you talk about kind of your, um, you, you know, your ideology a little bit and, um, you know, kind of the the way you view the world and, you know, kind of looking at um, this? I mean, it, it sounds, you know, when you really get to dive in and understand all of the things that uh, you talk about in the book and in your presentations, mm -hmm. so much of it sounds very intuitive, but it, it's such a huge missing piece that mm -hmm. very often the world is focused on what they see and what they see are behaviors and they're yeah. not focused at anything that lays beneath that surface. So can you talk a little bit about kind of your general approach uh, and how that evolved into Beyond Behaviors? Mm. It's like you said, it, it seems logical to wonder about uh, why, why a behavior is there. It seems logical. But what I found out through all, you know, through all my years of, of thinking about this deeply, because I was always interested in the why behind the behaviors and as the, you know, that underneath the waterline, so that spewing behaviors as the tip of the iceberg, I think was the gift that my mentors gave me, Serena Weeder and Dr. Stanley Greenspan, um, 30 years ago, that I, I'll never forget when I first applied that knowledge, I was sitting in a group and I actually thought about my daughter, one of my daughters that I had been very hard on thinking that her behaviors were her choice to uh, make, our, make our life a little disagreeable or difficult or that she just had to buck up. I'll never forget. Um, and she was only a toddler, but I'll never forget tears streaming down my face when I realized that behaviors are only the tip of the iceberg. And they often, and they always signify a greater meaning inside a person's nervous system, inside the body. We're, we're not just a head. We are beings that are connected. And so it, it started there. It started in this retraining that I had in looking at infant and child development, looking at this development that happens through the interface between a child's body and their environment. So that that led me to quietly, very quietly in my practice because I, I felt like I was alone in this. Um, when I, I presented ideas and IEPs and stuff and the teams were pretty wonderful, they pretty much agreed. And then we had these very high success rates with my, with my clients and I was asked to, 
to train, um, you know, more people. And, and as the decades grew, I realized, I realized that this information needs to get out there, not because I wanted to do public speaking or write books because that was really the last thing on my mind. I loved being a psychologist and seeing all my patients in my cozy offices. I loved it. But when I, you know, I, I had that one moment in a, about 10 years ago when a child was thrown into a seclusion room mm. for a stress response, a very clear cry for help. He was put into a seclusion room and every adult in the room believed that was best for him. Mm. That's when I decided this is not okay. This is not right. And I have the theory that isn't actually a theory. We don't have to use a theory. We All we have to do is look at physiology. All mm -hmm. we have to do is look at the human nervous system to understand behaviors in a more sophisticated way. And I think that's what I have been trying trying to describe that's why I described and beyond behaviors and i think that's why it's so popular it's because we we can we don't have to rely on uh one theory like behavior theory we don't have to rely on a specific uh way or model all we have to do is really look to modern neuroscience and and yes, it's modern. I mean, we're talking about the last 15 years. That's very short. That's not very long for things to, to um, trickle down to the education system or to mental health. So I'm at the nexus of that. I, I'm kind of pushing, mm -hmm. I'm pushing on that because I, I'm seeing too much suffering for parents and for ch and innocent children and teenagers. Absolutely. And, and of course that, that that suffering often leads to trauma, and that trauma, of course, is is apt to lead to responses, stress responses that that may have been what uh, very similar to what got them in that position in the first place. Um, one of the things you and, mentioned, and just, let me just emphasize yeah, sure, what you just sure. said because I think that's really important. I note in the book cases of what's called iatrogenic trauma, which means that the trauma is caused an inadvertent and unexpected and unintentional cause of the treatment. So when you are secluded, restrained, ignored, looked at like you're odd, um, the way people look at you and talk to you is so critical to how we feel inside as humans. The dehumanization of our behaviorally challenged children has caused trauma. So I, I, that is not an overstatement. And I also wonder if it has something to do with the very high level of anxiety and depression we see in our neurodivergent mm -hmm. populations. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, I've always kind of felt that there was a, a big intersection uh, between disability and trauma and, and looking at, uh, some of the trauma that may be inherent to disability as well, uh, thinking about communication differences or yeah. anxiety. Uh, and then, of course, we, we look at the data. And, of course, you know, we, we focus heavily on restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, all of those things. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the data of these things that are happening to kids and you see how disproportionately they happen to 
children with disabilities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 80% of the restraints, 77% of seclusions, uh, you know, there, there's obviously a problem and, and something that's not working. And, you know, it gets back to this idea, I think, that a lot of um, what is being done in the name of uh, behavioral uh, supports are not working for the kids that really need the most help. That's right. Yeah. So I know a lot of your work um, cites the work of Dr. Porges and, and the polyvagal theory. Um, and, and Dr. Porges, you know, also kind of famously said safety is treatment and treat, treatment is safety, which, yeah. which uh, was a, a fantastic quote. I wonder if you might talk a little bit just at a very high level of, of what the polyvagal theory is. You've talked about the body, but without getting too deep into the science, uh, which is something you do so beautifully in the book is that, you know, science yeah. sometimes can be unapproachable and, you know, you really yeah. do a fantastic job of making well, science approachable. Yeah. And I'm definitely not a neuroscientist. I am the farthest thing from it. I, I'm a therapist, clinician uh, through and through, but Luckily, uh, it's it, it, you are able to one is able to distill the essence of the polyvagal theory, which basically was um, a a theory that Dr. Porges uh, introduced in 1994, not that long ago, about the evolutionary origins of the autonomic ner nervous system. And he expanded it from just, you know, you have the parasympathetic and the sympathetic, the fight or flight or the rest and digest. Okay, that's kind of what, what everyone thought about it, but it became so useful because he described the social engagement system as um, a new, newer circuit of the ventral vagal pathway. This is one of the vagal pathways in our, in our body, brain. Um, and this, this ventral vagal pathway is linked to the human drive to feel safe and to protect ourselves subconsciously from threat. So the, the human drive for safety is a, um, is a, what we call phylogenetic or evolutionary part of being human. Our bodies protect us mm -hmm. when our bodies feel threatened. And so those, those things that are subconscious, meaning that we're not aware of, are often driving these fight or flight behaviors, which are evidence of the sympathetic nervous system. So when someone is in a fight or flight uh, reaction, they look very, they can look very scary, very threatening. Mm -hmm. They may hit, they may curse, they may throw things off the desk. Those are, those are troubling. Those are hard. I realize that. But the way mental health has conceptualized these behaviors has been through a disorder lens, through the DSM, mm -hmm. uh, which was probably, which was revolutionary in the 1950s, right? I'm sure, because it was categorizing things. It was putting clusters of, of, of observable behaviors into labels. It was very useful in the 1950s, but it's very harmful now because mm -hmm. if we call a desperate fight or flight response, oppositional defiant disorder, that is, you've got a disorder, and that means you have to learn how to behave better when your nervous system is screaming out for safety from the adults around you, we've got a problem. Now, are there individuals that might have a 
more sensitive uh, system or response to, or, or, or higher likelihood of ending up in a, a fight or flight response? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the word that best describes um, our nervous systems is complexity. Mm-hmm. So there will be many, many different factors relating to how reactive your nervous system is. There, there are prenatal factors. There is the prenatal environment. There are genetic factors. Um, of course, there are factors in your w- brain wiring, how your brain takes in information from your body. Um, that's called interoception. Um, your there's there's differences in how you you react to things. So some people are maybe overreactive to certain things, certain sensations. Uh, for example, I had a um, severe uh, illness when I was 19 that d- damaged my vestibular system. So I'm very sensitive to movement and to certain volumes of sound. It's there's so many different different things. But let's also say that toxic stress and trauma. Right can impact how information is processed um, and your your regulation system. Mm -hmm. And it depends on how early that was, how long it went on, and how severe it was, and how that interacted with each each individual's um, biology. So it's Mm -hmm. very complex and nuanced. Would would you agree that that you know, in your experience, that that children uh, who may be uh, more more, let's say, hypervigilant, more apt to be on alert, um, are being more apt to be harshly disciplined. So, so you know, the the kids that we're talking about that that may have a stronger survival drive here may be more apt to engage in kind of distress behavior, and then. Uh, be restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, kind of um, push down that pipeline? Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. Because those are fight or flight behaviors for many of our children. They're not intentional behaviors to be bad. They're protective, defensive, and subconscious actions. Mm -hmm. So we need to watch our language because you said engage in those behaviors. But I want Mm -hmm. people to understand that they're not engaging consciously with the behaviors. The behaviors are coming out through an adaptive protective response, which are Mm non-voluntary and are mediated through the sympathetic nervous system. So it's a great question. And yes, they are more apt. Those are the children who are targeted for behavioral interventions at the highest rates Mm -hmm. and if those behavioral interventions are too harsh or occur too much or too long, another problem happens. Those children can go deep inside and start to shut down into the dorsal vagal, more of a dorsal vagal pathway in which they are very activated on the inside, but on the outside they're shut down. And I have seen schools, I've seen special education schools with older teenagers who are just sitting you know, sitting around on a playground because they don't have enough energy to fight anymore. Mm-hmm. And we need to watch out. And particularly in autism treatment, and I don't even want to call it treatment, but mm-hmm. in autism ap- approaches, 
that do not pay attention to these stress behaviors and treat them as something to be, and in trauma, of course, in, uh, treat them as something to be extinguished is going against what we know about the neuroscience of safety. So, so a child has an adaptive behavior that is actually helping them to cope with a situation, yet the the approach may be taken um, you know, through a professional of, you know, trying to extinguish that behavior, which in fact is a, an adaptive behavior and then placing the child in, in more, in, in a more difficult situation. Is that where you're? That's yes. Because if the, if the child is acting on a, on a, uh, subconscious perception of threat called neuroception, if they're, mm-hmm. if they're perceiving threat and their body is moving in such a way that they are trying to run away they're trying to, it could be called, called elopement. If they're trying to get out of there, if they're hitting themselves, if they're hitting others, et cetera, different forms of agitation, if they're easily triggered, then this approach would not work. Now, I have also witnessed, I should say, wonderful therapists and aides, like behavioral aides in schools who get this. And when they start to see the child agitating, they use their relationship to help the child. Yeah. They don't they don't go to the calm down room. They right. they will look and they'll say, "Oh, he, he needs to go to the bathroom." Yeah. Or, "Oh, she's she's hungry. We need to get some we need to get some sugar into her. She's just she her blood sugar is dropping. Oh, yeah. sweetheart, let me help you." Right. There are people out there who get this intuitively because it works. Right. Right. Hey, and and you you led right into what I wanted to ask you next and and, you know, you and I have talked quite a bit about, um, you know, the importance of relationships. And, you know, I often kind of jokingly say that my three R's of education are relationship, relationship, relationship. Yeah, I love that. I it's, it's so critical, and especially critical to to children that may, um, you know, be having a difficult time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the importance. I mean, relationship sounds like, oh, relationship, it's important. But, but yeah. in thinking about these things we've just been talking about, why are relationships so critical? Uh, especially thinking about, you know, I, I think about the very young children uh, who may not have developed certain skills or may not have the developmental capacity, as you might say, uh, to do certain functions that might be helpful. Why is relationships so critical in, in helping children to be successful? Mm. Lisa Feldman Barrett said it so well. She said the most important and she's a neuroscientist, the most important thing for a human, a human's nervous system is another human's nervous system. And what that means is that when a child, no matter what the age, but especially a child who's struggling with basic skills or putting things together in a uh, motor planning way, that's called praxis, who just has struggles with the most basic one, two step processes, it's it's the holding environment. We call that in, in psychology, we call it a holding environment. We call it a, a, a like a container of safety is when another human is there with you um, offering their presence and and witnessing with you like, oh, this is this is difficult instead of try harder, you'll get a You'll get a sticker if you do that. Come on, you know, we, you know, like, like again, it's well-meaning. But if we, if we are a cheerleader and we're offering incentives, that's 
not exactly what we mean by the relationship. What we mean by the relationship is something called attunement. When you're seen and you're heard and you're witnessed, it's so powerful. Maybe we can, as adults, we can think of it as, think of the last time that you were very upset and your partner was was maybe trying to solve the problem for you too fast. Like, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? You know, <laughs> my well-meaning husband, you know, is guilty of that and I adore him. But sometimes all I need for him is to say, oh, wow, I, I, I'm just going to sit here with you and I want you to know we'll figure this out together and you're not alone. I need to take a note on this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> to all the problem solvers out there. That's you know? right, that's right. <laughs> because we, we really want to help our kids figure it out and get to that goal. But, but the, what the relationship of attunement means isn't just uh, being an, a nice person or a warm body in the room. Uh, some schools don't get this. They they were like, oh, the teacher is very nice, but the child is going up and throwing up in, during breaks because they're so anxious. Mm-hmm. So we have to we have to tailor that niceness to what that child needs, and we have to witness more and and cajole less. Mm-hmm. I think. Okay. So I want to shift for a minute into some questions that were submitted by uh, folks through our social media accounts. Great. Yeah, great. Um, and uh, you left them on, on yeah, my absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so the first one I have is uh, why don't pediatricians screen for ACEs or stress responses in their pediatric population in an effort mm-hmm. uh, for earlier and greater interventions? Uh, and Teresa, I believe in North Dakota, asked that. Ah, uh, Teresa. Well, it, we just started that in California. Um, we have our, our uh, Surgeon General here in California is Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, and she wrote a book, um, I think called The Deepest Well, about childhood trauma. So some states are, some states have requirements to screen for ACEs. I think it's essential. It's so important. Let me also say, however, that just because a child passes, so to speak, an ACEs screen doesn't mean the child doesn't have toxic stress or trauma. Mm. So I really believe we need to go beyond ACEs to think more broadly um, because the, the ACEs scale was developed for adults thinking uh, and recalling the events that they had as children, right? Early childhood experiences. But I think that we need to really have a broader definition. I think there's a lot more traumatized children out there than we know. Mm-hmm. So I would also ask pediatricians to really think about if the child has chronic sleep issues, uh, difficulties feeding, difficulties with transitions, behavioral challenges, especially early on. Look for stress in that child's life. Look for stress either through their wiring or through their environment. Um, and, and let's get more savvy about what stress looks like in children's bodies. That's great. And I forgot my own rule here, uh, which is always to find an acronym. Uh, so for anybody that's not aware, ACEs is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study or Adverse Childhood Experiences. So uh, Thank try, you. To, try to catch myself there. All that's right. Great. I have another question here from Dana. Uh, COVID-related trauma and misconceptions about challenging behaviors. How can we prepare both teachers and parents? So I guess really what that's getting at is, is knowing that we've all been through this uh, tremendous trauma. And, and it's not over yet. I mean, you know, schools are still deciding to mask or not mask mm. the virtual school or not virtual school. Um, but what are your thoughts on um, 
preparing teachers and um, you know parents as kids are beginning to go back to school uh, related to kind of the COVID trauma? Yeah, and and uh, just my heart aches for my heart aches for the world still. Uh, just when it seemed like mm. there were these upturn, this 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 the toxicity of it's just getting worse because now we're going back. There's some places that are regressing in the amounts of of transmission. It's just it's so sad. So compassion for everybody. Um, but I, I I'll say this. I just thought of this, but. Let's, we can think of the challenging behaviors as a litmus test for how stressed a child is. Mm-hmm. So let's just think of it as a litmus test, right? The children with the most challenging behaviors, teachers and parents, I want you to consider that that might mean that these are the most vulnerable children. They need the most relational support and they need, the, uh, they need not to be pushed when you start school again. They need people hanging around with them, having fun, letting them move their bodies, letting them have recess, letting them have free play because in free play and especially pretend play is how little humans work through their trauma. And so let us work with, um, let's think about using the more challenging a child's behavior is in this entry and it's true regardless of COVID, but let's just consider that many children are going to have more challenging behaviors in this transition because it's a hard transition. (laughs) And some children will have um, more behaviors at school because they've actually done better at home. (laughs) So there's a sub group of kids who've actually felt safer at home and now they got to go to school. Yeah. We've seen that in our community where, there were kids that were getting restrained and secluded at school on a, on a regular basis. And, and they were suddenly home and returning to be the, the kids that they were when this wasn't happening. Uh, so we, we have seen a lot of that in our community. Yeah. Yes. I've seen it too. Yeah. All right. Uh, let me move on. And, and, and let me just ask one more question, kind of a follow-up on, on that. Um, teachers of course have been through a lot of uh, trauma as well. What, if you were to make a recommendation to a school system administrator or a superintendent, what kind of recommendations might you make to them in terms of considering the trauma that their staff has been through and, and probably the stress as they're beginning to worry about uh, transitioning back and, and uh, whatnot? Any, any thoughts on that? Oh, yes. <laughs> Be gentle on the teachers. Um, take care of the teachers. And, it, the 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 process isn't that different for for adults and children. We all need to be mommied. <laughs> we all need to have to have somebody there saying, "Oh, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you need?" And every teacher is going to be different. But let's just say, teacher, many teachers are parents as well, mm-hmm. and and if they're worried about their own children, what are I would say, find out what loads, what mental loads your teachers are carrying because their mental loads about their own health, their children's health, their finances, their everything is, is comes into the classroom. So rather than, I, I'd rather see that than teachers getting um, like training in 
how the brain processes trauma. You know, I, and I say that with due respect. I mean, cause a lot of, and there's a lot of money on the table for training teachers. And I just think that what we need now is a much more basic approach of taking care of each other and, and using new methods to help soothe and calm the nervous system of teachers, of parents, of children, of all of us mm-hmm. who have gone through so much. We've gone through the fear of life threat, which is the worst kind of fear you can have, losing your life or your child losing their life. The fear of that or knowing someone who's passed mm-hmm. um, or, the- or the theoretical idea of it has been terrifying. Mm-hmm. So. I guess I would say take care of the teachers. Yeah, and a lot of it goes back to the other principles you've talked about. It's about compassion. It's about relationships. It's about knowing that there's, um, you know, maybe maybe it's, uh, you know, even some co-regulation happening through, uh, you know, that that uh, staff level as well. Yes, yes, and 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 to address the fact, I think we need to ad- talk about there will be additional pressure um, to catch up academically because yes, there have been academic losses, but we can acknowledge that and hold that at the same time as holding our mental health um, and our children's mental health, because Mm -hmm. you really need uh, a, a, a strong foundation of mental health in order to learn new things. So it's not like it's ancillary. It's actually, we, we need to, kind of help teachers understand that it's it's not the end of the world if you can't catch your children up in this next school year mm-hmm. right that may take longer and it's not an indi- it's not the it's not the most important thing it's important but it's not the most important thing absolutely uh so let me get to a couple more questions here um this one from Chantel. she said I'd, I'd love to know any therapies and methods that can help a nonverbal child who has experienced traumatic seclusion, who lashes out uh, aggressively in uh, moments of increased discomfort. Mm. Well, um, it just my my heart goes out to that to that student. The first thing I will say is that I, um, for non-speaking students, I always prioritize. Um, alternative communication. So a team who will offer um, AAC, augmented alternative communication and or facilitated communication, FC as needed, that person, that human needs to communicate. Mm -hmm. That communication will allow them through, whether it's through a device or through a pointing system or whatever um, mechanism alternative to communication. We mustn't think that just because a person can't think, uh, can't, I'm sorry, can't talk doesn't mean that they can't think. Mm -hmm. So they are, we need, I would, I would say for all students who have difficulty with communication, I don't use nonverbal for the reason of, I believe it's non-speaker because we are inside their thoughts. Um, that will help. That will help, of course, because then you'll have more of a pathway to getting your needs met. So communication and then really uh, so much compassion around those behaviors, having some sort of a, of a meaning 
uh, and maybe that that child or, or teenager needs help regulating their nervous system. So regulation through relationships, like you said, the three R's, how can I, how can we help you? What do you need? Is what is, what is causing this at this moment? Is it a certain tone or pitch in the room? Is it a dripping of a faucet that they can hear that is like sounding like storming elephants? Uh, is it the feel of the clothing on their skin? Is it a memory that's coming back of being harmed? I mean, it, it, it really, listen to those individuals and please try to imagine that if you just have your behavior consequenced or reinforced when it's actually a stress response that is um, that can feel really lonely. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, and just to jump in on that, um, you know, the idea of AAC, uh, we actually have a guest uh, two weeks from now, uh, Mike Hickel, oh. who's going to be talking about augmented alternative communication uh, oh. and, and even relating it to um, how AAC can help children that might be having challenging behaviors. So, oh, um, fantastic! Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I will. I hope to be there. That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, so we have about five minutes left. I, I promised you because I know you have a very uh, busy schedule right now that I that would keep us on on uh, time here. So let me get to a couple of questions and maybe we can kind of go through a few of these quickly, uh, and then we'll we'll wrap up here. I think you and I could probably talk for hours. Uh, oh, I know. I love this. We'll on the plate. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so here's a question here that says, and this is from Mandy, what are some of your favorite or most successful strategies for children labeled uh, autism spectrum uh, disorder, addressing elopement and refusal to do work? Mm. Well, the, the strategy starts with the idea that elopement and the refusal to do work may have something in common. So that thing that they may have in common is that the child is not in the ventral vagal system. They are not what I call the green pathway in the book, but they are having a shift from feeling calm and safe and able to work and willing to work and wanting to work or play to needing to move. So we can think about ref work refusal as, as, um, kind of like, I, I can't do this right now, so I need to move my body. That's what eloping is, is the physi physiological need to move. And then you just take a, take a peek. I mean, does the child have sweaty hands, sweaty face? Is their heart rate up? Are they activated? Are they agitated? So the technique for helping a child who is in a stressed position is to help them feel less stressed. <laughs> and, and that's why, um, you know, again, our, our, our school system might not think that a child who is having a, um, who is eloping out of the classroom has a real reason for that. But I would say, again, look under the tip of the iceberg. What are the, characteristics, the sensory characteristics of that classroom or of that room they're in that might be sending them through the roof mm -hmm. autonomically. Mm 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Automatically. Yeah, that's that's great input. And I think about the conversation we had with Greg Santusi recently. And, you know, one of the things that that we talked about is that there's this tendency to when these these challenges arise to look at the child. Uh, And, you know, one of the points that Greg made was talking about the environment. And, you know, we we got on the side topic of, you know, before you do a a functional behavior assessment, shouldn't you be doing an environmental assessment, you know, figuring out what in the environment might be getting in the child's way? Um, Yeah, great point. So let me try to... And there was just a comment here from Olivia, um, and and I think it's so right on. She says, work refusal, the energy load... Oh, there you go. The energy level doesn't match the energy required for the task demand. Step back and level up the energy. Yes, this we don't we don't realize how much energy it takes to learn new things for so many students that, as Ross Green says, which I totally agree, children do well if they can. And when they can't, there's a reason. So that energy level, it's like work refusal. We have to view that again through a compassionate lens. It may mean this child worked for five minutes and now they need a 10 minute break. And who's to argue with that, right? That's their body. We can't just say, no, your body needs to work for another 10 minutes. It's not respectful to the individual differences in the nervous system. Absolutely. So let me ask you one more question, then we'll we'll close it out. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to combine two questions together a little bit, but it, well, that's it, it, all right. I mean, we I have a few more minutes. You don't okay, have to okay. rush too fast. <laughs> okay. um, well, well, the question was th- there were two questions that struck me, and I'll read the first one to you, which it says, uh, "Please, can you refer me to any further information?" Uh, hold on, uh, that wasn't the one I was looking for. Ah, here it is. Uh, how can I, as a parent, short of giving every one of them a copy of your book, uh, gently advise teachers or even psychologists in this method and to stop using the defiant child label? label? Mm. Well, um, I'm doing everything I can to help make that make that more socially acceptable. Let me just say that. And I, my heart is with you because it's hard. And yes, it's, there's a very high likelihood that your school and even maybe your pediatrician and most psychologists that you would go to, because my field of mental health still believes that oppositional defiance is, that is, is something that is wrong with the child rather than something that is wrong with the environment or the relational environment, is to stay strong. Um, stay connected with groups like this who can support you. Stay connected with parent groups. And um, by the way, this might be a good time for me to, to, to announce that I'm going to be forming a, a Facebook group, a Beyond Behaviors Facebook group, where we can interact on a more regular basis. I'm Fantastic. getting with the system to, to provide communities for you to feel that support because the, as, as Guy said in the beginning, the momentum is shifting, but it's not at a critical point, uh, t- t- tipping point yet. So you are going to feel alone in this sometimes. So seek, seek that support. And I continue to try to bring up resources uh, for you. But you can, I think really what, what is pretty successful is to talk, start talking about your child's individual differences in their nervous systems. And um, our education system is supposed to 
have individual plans. Uh, that's what an IEP is supposed to be. So we can start talking about, this is my child's nervous system. This is what the, what my child's nervous system needs. And as a, as a school or community, you are, um, you are uh, empowered to or, or need to take that information into consideration in how my child is treated. Yeah, you, you know, um, one of the thoughts I have on this is that, um, you know, it is hard. And somebody mentioned, well, buying the books. And, and I'll, I, I will say that I have handed out books to IEP teams, both your book and, and Dr. Green's book. Uh, and, and I've had some success with that. But, but you know, it may be also putting pressure and challenge in the schools on some of the things that they're doing that are harmful. So uh, in, in my case, uh, working locally, uh, we began to challenge the restraint seclusion use in our school district. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that came up, th- this provides an opportunity to talk about work like yours, but one of the questions that came up very early was, well, if you're, we're not going to do this, what are we going to do? If we can't restrain or seclude a kid, then what? And, and that's when you get into talking about things like your book, which are, oh, you're looking for other things. How can yeah. we do this better? So right. it may come in rather than just saying, here's a great way you should be doing things. I've got ideas on how you should do your job. You know, maybe it's, it's, bringing to light some of the issues that might be there and pushing because, you know, we, we know that a lot of, you know, this is based on science, what you've been talking about. And it's far more modern science than the science that's prevalent in a lot of our schools. Yes. The science prevalent in a lot of our schools is is classical behaviorism uh, that was, you know, um, you know, decades ago, and you know, was based on rats and pigeons. And you know, I've I've had behaviorists tell me things like, "I don't care why this child is doing what they're doing. I just want to change their behavior." And your work is so important in, in realizing you've got to get below the iceberg. You've got to understand the why. But that change is hard. That change is very, very hard. And I th- I would never be talking about it if I thought that it was innocuous to children or that children were doing fine mm-hmm. uh, on behavior schedules. You know, that's, if, if, if that was the case, then um, there wouldn't be a discussion, but there's so many thousands and hundreds of thousands of parents around the world and individuals now in the neurodiversity movement telling us um, that it's hard to, that we can't deny the fact that there is some harm evolving from such a limited view of uh, treatment. Now, and, and again, I think we should also bring up the fact that this is a, I think, a billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. I know that a behavioral uh, firm was was acquired through a private equity fund for many hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're talking about power through uh, money, through control. And I don't mean to imply in any way that people who use behaviorism are not ethical and not wanting to do their job. But I want to say that those conferences where they are still saying it's perfectly fine to treat behavior as a behavior and you don't need to know about the internal life of the child of the teenager is wrong yeah yeah or or, or, or conferences uh you know that have happened in real life i'm not making this up that have supported practices like electroshock uh that happens at the judge rotenberg center um you know there there are things out there that are being supported and justified uh that are really antiquated science it's it's not only antiquated science and then if the go-to is well 
these children, otherwise these children would do X, you know, we don't have anything else to offer. If we don't do this, they will hurt other people or they will hurt themselves even more. That is a knee jerk reaction. And it, there is always something else to do. Always. You just have to be creative and dig deeper and get to know that child's um, really get to know that child's nervous system in a new way. Absolutely. And, and and we know from the work that we've done here at the Alliance that there are a lot of schools out there that have gotten rid of the use of seclusion or gotten rid of the use of restraint and, and have done much better things. There are far better things we can be doing, but people often hold on to uh, beliefs, uh, even when in fact there are far better things that we can be doing. Uh, so, so it's a challenge, but you know, certainly, I think there is some momentum. Uh, your work and the work of of so many others, I think, is helping to do that. And and certainly, you know, I encourage everyone who is is watching this uh, either now or later, um, you know, share these videos with your your teachers and your staff. Uh, if you're a teacher, share them with your parents. Uh, the more we can get people thinking in these ways and expose them to some of the better ways that we can be supporting kids the more apt we are to make progress, you know, find allies. Uh, You may not have allies everywhere, but finding those allies can be helpful too. Finding those allies. And thank you for starting your organization, for starting this group and continuing to put the information out there before the public. It, it has to be out there. Olivia here says that I don't think parents are aware of, of how much restraint and seclusion is actually used because it is referred to as therapeutic handling. Yes, I've had many children who have been handled at school and the the parents will not be told because it's not considered um, to be an excessive level of force that the child had to be handled in that way. When you restrain a child, you... And they need, and their body needs to move. You may well be adding to the stress load of their nervous system, and over time, if it happens over and over again, that can cause trauma. So, absolutely, um, the you guys, like everybody here, I can tell there's a lot of energy around it, and the alliance. Um, I just keep on going. Let me know how I can help. We need to get this information out there and empower parents and and providers and teachers from the inside to start speaking up and, um, and, and just feeling, feeling good about that. There's support around it. We can manage this tough time through communication and mutual respect. We can do this. Absolutely. Uh, listen, I don't want to take up any more of your time because I know you have uh, a lot of things on your plate. Uh, I don't want to go back to editing, but okay, I have- well, in that case, we'll add another hour. <laughs> um, uh, is, is that editing anything you can talk about? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm I'm putting the final edits uh, or I'm putting and not the final edits. That'll be in a few months, but I'm editing in my third book. I am so excited about this book coming out in March. Um, and, uh, I, I, as soon as I get, we'll do another one. As soon as I get kind of a go ahead from, um, the publisher to start talking about it a little more, I will, but it's mm-hmm. going to be, a, uh, it's going to be a parenting book, a general parenting book. And, um, I'm going to be just blasting out another theory that's very complementary to uh, the polyvagal theory to help mm-hmm. guide us in just this difficult job of parenting. It's like 
so heartfelt and so hard. So can't wait to share it with you. Absolutely excited about that. And, and th th thinking ahead, look for an email from me because we're, we're going to go ahead and book you for March. What? <laughs> so, Great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we're booking Actually, out in February already. So. Oh man, can you stick, try to get me in in February so we can work on pre-sales. That would be amazing. That would be fantastic. Thank well, you. listen, uh, I, I'm going to let you go. Um, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, you are, um, you are an amazing person and, and one of the most compassionate and caring people that I know. Um, the, the, um, work that you've been doing, I mean, really is making a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes this problem seems so overwhelming to all of us mm -hmm. that are, that are yeah. in the trenches, but, but I know that the work that you're doing is, is having an impact and, mm -hmm. you know, just really appreciate it and, and appreciate your generosity and, and sharing your time with us today. Wow. Oh, thank you so much. It's absolutely a joy and a pleasure to be in this together. So Right Absolutely. back at you. Thanks, Guy. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'll let you go. And I have a few announcements for everybody else. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the presentation today, the, the uh, interview. Um, Mona is just amazing. And it's always a pleasure to have her on. I do want to let you know uh, that we've got more exciting stuff coming up. Uh, as always, uh, we've got a, another uh, session again in two weeks. And with that one, um, I mentioned earlier as the topic came up, we're going to be talking with Mike Hipple. Uh, Mike is going to be talking about augmented alternative communication uh, and talking a little bit about how uh, AAC devices can help children that may be having challenging behaviors. So uh, really looking forward to that. That's going to be a, a really unique opportunity. So we're we're excited to have Mike on. Uh, and of course, we've got other things. I think we, we're planned right now up until about February. So we've got a lot of other great things coming towards you. Uh, thank everybody again. Uh, we do want to remind you, um, you know, that it's very helpful for you, if you can, to support things like the Keeping All Students Safe Act. Uh, that's the act that would ban the use of seclusion, uh, put reductions on the use of restraint, banning prone restraint, adding education. Um, we really need lawmakers to support that, uh, whether it's co-sponsoring or just supporting the legislation. So you you guys can all make a difference in, in helping to do things like that. So thank you so much for joining us today, and we will see you again real soon. So thank you.